I knew that I was like, this sketch gets more messed up the further into it it goes. So I was like, if you guys don't like this, you are going to hate when I show you my bare ass. Welcome and thank you for listening to Almost Almost Famous, the podcast where actors, writers, comedians talk about the ups and downs, ebbs and flows of working towards making this crazy biz and how they're almost, almost famous. I'm your host, Daniel Acker. Today's guest is the co-creator and composer for Nickelodeon's Tennis, The Good Boy. He can be seen performing on UCB teams, Mod Night Trainwreck and Character Night Costello. He also performs on the Packhouse sketch team, Gutter. Plus, he used to tour the country in a folk band. It is the one and only Andres Parada. Hey, hey. Hello, sir. Oh, my gosh. Some fun stuff. I just want to dive right in because I'm so curious. What's yeah. The, the folk band. What did you do? Were, were you, what instrument or instruments? Were you vocalist? What, what was the story? Mostly guitar and banjo. Yeah. And so I would tour. That's I found like comedy and stuff through music. Mm. Uh, but I would tour around the country from like I started when I was like probably 17, just like little around the area things playing in folk punk bands. Okay. And then uh, I started doing it more and more. And then in my 20s, I was touring a lot. No bands that anyone's ever heard of. We were not liked by people. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not really like a credit as much as it is uh, just like a fun adventure that I was chasing for a long time. I would say, I mean, folk punk feels like no one might be satisfied. It's like the folk people are maybe not going to be as into the punk and the punk people are going to be into the folk. So that's a very interesting kind of blend of of sounds. Yeah. And then when you look at the people who are into this type of music, it's like it's also the cool thing because you're like, oh, if it weren't for this, these people would have nothing. Like it's like the it's not even you don't even get to be accepted as a punk. You're like on the fringe of punk, which is already a fringe group. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Thank God for for this sliver of a thing for these people to like glom onto. So you said you yeah. found comedy through through kind of music. What was the was the journey or discovery with that? So we started playing. We'd play shows with this band. They're not around anymore, but they're called the Manx. And uh, we would like look at their merch and we would be like, man, they're this design is incredible. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're uh, character designers and we work on. We make uh, like if you ever seen we make the show Uncle Grandpa, like uh, there were a couple of them were storyboard artists on that show. Another one's just had a show called uh, Tig and Seek. But anyways, these guys were just doing cool stuff. And we were all, you know, losers from a small town. Like we didn't know that that was a possibility. And so then my buddy was really into design and I was kind of the one who was super into music and stuff. We started making cartoons together where we'd record all the audio first in the van while we'd be on tour in like parking lots of grocery stores when we'd have a day off or whatever. And then he would, was learning how to animate it while I was learning how to do sound effects and stuff. And then one of the ideas that we had that we'd been working on, Nickelodeon was taking pitches and he submitted the idea and they invited us to come pitch. And then they ended up producing a pilot for us through their shorts program And through doing that, I got to see what it was like to do music for the industry. And then we ended up like using that to do another pilot thing for this other uh, company. And that company let me know basically straight up that I had no idea what I was doing because I was writing it too with him. We were co-writing it. And I didn't like I went to film school for a semester 
like when I was young and I dropped out immediately because I was like, fuck these rules. I'm a folk punker. I'm not going to listen to this stuff. <laughs> so I learned immediately. So they hired while I was in this thing, writing this thing that I helped co-created with my buddy, they hired another writer. And that writer was from UCB. And then once I saw what he did, I was like, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. Not only am I embarrassed, but I'm also inspired. And I wish that I could do that. I wish more than anything. And I'd always been a huge comedy nerd. So I already knew what UCB was and what what groundlings were. And uh, so that opened up my mind. It wasn't until like a year or two later that I started being like, maybe I'll try it. But that that's... was my the path through music. Oh, wow. That's so fascinating. I mean, good for you for, you know, kind of hearing and accepting that you didn't know what you were doing. You know, some people would just be like, oh, no, no, no. I, I'll fake it till I make it. But you're kind of like, I hear you. That makes perfect sense. And you saw someone who was like, oh, that's kind of the steps you take. Now, you said you grew up in a really like small town. Was there any sense while growing up that you were going to pursue uh, music and comedy in the arts? Or was it sort of like, a, was it like you said, very kind of later in life realization? Uh, I knew music. I, I grew up in an artist colony in the middle of the desert. It's called Tubac, Arizona. Population 600. So itty bitty. Wow. Yeah. But. All of my brothers, all of my siblings are uh, artists too, like in varying degrees. So I see the influence that, because neither of my parents are artists, but uh, I see the influence that our upbringing had on us. So me starting to tour when I was like 17, I knew that I wanted to perform, but it wasn't until I started going through my belongings uh, a little bit after my my dad passed away, my mom invited me over to her house to go through my stuff to get rid of it all because she was selling her house. And in my boxes, it was like all comedy stuff, like a letter that from Adam Sandler. I wrote Adam Sandler as a kid and I got a po signed postcard back and like all of my Saturday Night Live toys that I mean, I got them. You can see them over there. I still got them hanging on my wall, like just everything was comedy. And so uh, my mom was like, yeah, like that was what I was sure you were going to do. I was like, you could have told me that. Why didn't you? So I signed up my, my dad when he passed away, said that he left behind money for me to go to school. And so my mom was like, any type, I know that I never went to college. Everyone else in my family did. So my mom was like, you know, comedy school counts. And so I started going full time at every single comedy theater at the same time. That's amazing. I mean, isn't it funny as a kid? So somehow like, you know, before you even know, like, yeah, these like weird moments where you're like, yeah, like you said, like, could have could have brought that to my attention as I was aging and trying to figure out life. <laughs> like, oh yeah. yeah, as a child, you always gravitated towards comedy. And not just, it sounds like not just kind of like, oh, I like it and it makes me laugh, but like a true love of it, a true kind yeah. of interest in how it works and the mechanics. How do you feel like your knowledge and background of being uh, able to do music has influenced just your comedy stylings? The biggest way that it helped me was by touring when you're playing, you know, shows for, you know, 40 nights in a row or whatever it is, you get rid of a lot of the things that I think early levels of comedy training are teaching you to do, which is ultimately to be comfortable on stage is to like kind of let go and stuff. So I feel like when I started comedy, a lot of people were like, oh, like, how long have you been studying that type of thing? And it wasn't because I was necessarily good at comedy. It was just because I was very comfortable performing in front of people. Mm -hmm. So that was the biggest thing that music offered me was uh, being comfortable in front of people. 
And then like structurally, it makes sense that I'm like, once I started learning about game or stuff that I'm like, oh yeah, there's a chorus, there's, there's verses and you have to, you have to have a bridge near the, it, it, at least in my mind, my favorite sketches have a bridge near the end of the song, which is like an emotional turn so that when we hit the chorus again, it hits super strong. So definitely structurally, but the biggest one performing. Yeah. I would say there's, there's nothing like the education of stage time, like you could read the books, you could write, you could study, you could be in a classroom, but until you're actually on a stage with an audience that isn't just friends or other people trying to do comedy, it's a real, like, it's just cold water to the face. And the more you get used to it and start to go, oh, that actually doesn't feel so bad. I'm sure you also picked up probably quickly from all those performances of kind of reading the audience and realizing like, oh, this is a crowd that's kind of really liking us if we we jam out a little harder or, or not so much and just from those little tweaks as a performer are just a godsend to just be like okay right i'm gonna hit that joke that normally i don't hit as hard but this is clearly the crowd for it and yeah i feel you know i'm not musically gifted in any way so i'm always jealous of the people who are because there is just a natural sense of both music and comedy are timing and just knowing a sense of rhythm is so so crucial that's so awesome how long have you been playing guitar and banjo and i guess any other instruments the, the guitar and banjo i i'm like a string instrument hoarder kind of mm. so i can fake my way through a bunch of different my, my under my bed is like full of world instruments from all over mm. uh but guitar i started when i was like 15 years old oh, wow. and then uh banjo a, a couple years after that although it, it stops meaning anything you know what i mean mm -hmm. like i feel like if i'd been playing that long and i was practicing a lot i'd be really good right now but now i'm just like i've just been playing that long so i'm kind of just an average player who's been playing way too long you know what <laughs> i mean if, if i have time too, jamming mm. is something that i'm like if you give me, if we can jam in a single chord, <laughs> then I'm fine. <laughs> but anything past that, I'm like, no, I need a few days to write to be able to play. Mm -hmm. Now, you said your parents weren't artists. What was the, I guess, launching point, if you know, of why they you moved to or you grew up in an artist community? Uh, it's this town. That, it's right on the border of Mexico. And my dad immigrated here from Chile. And so all, most of the work that he could get was because he spoke Spanish. And so he worked in Mexico, like in this Nogales, which is a split city, you know? Gotcha. So he brought food from uh, produce from across the line. So he would be in Mexico and then in on the United States side. And this town was a place that was in the middle of nowhere. So it was cheap land. And that commute was only like 40 minutes for him. And then for us to get to school, it was like, you know, 30 minutes or whatever. So it was just like in the middle of nowhere, but enough land that we could live and my dad could get to work. And enough of a community. Okay, that makes sense. It's just, a, yeah. you know, survival and convenience. And, but because it's so interesting, I, you know, it's I'm sure it's very rare for you to come across anyone who has a similar <laughs> childhood or living in such a small town, especially when you moved to LA and other cities where it's always. Yeah, yeah. It I feel like. The nice part about it is that it makes you so excited whenever you meet somebody who's from a small town. And there's also like a weird competition about it, too. You know what I mean? Where you're like, oh, really? How small your population? And every once in a while, you'll meet someone whose population is smaller. And you're like, tip my hat to you. Okay. That's small. <laughs> that is yeah. a very petite town. Yeah. yeah 600. Wow. 
That is the it's small. bigger. The population's like doubled now, so it's pretty big now. Oh yeah, <laughs> now it's one of uh one of the people who one of our neighbors, like kind of farther away neighbor neighbors, was Diane Keaton. Isn't that wild? <laughs> there there were like a few celebrities who lived in the middle of nowhere because it was so secluded. That and it was so like cool. horse property too. People could get horse property out there if they wanted. Gotcha. Now, over the years, have you given yourself a definition of success? Yeah. I think that it, it it's to do the thing that I love around people I love. That was one of the last things that my my dad told me is that my dad worked like really, really hard and immigrated here and came from, you know, he built a life to where by the end of his life, he was successful and he did it. And he had all of the things that people want with success. And he was like, it's all bullshit when he was because he got cancer. And so he knew that he was going to die. And he was like, it's all bullshit. Uh, it none of it matters. None of it matters at all. And I wish that I'd known that it's about doing what you love with the people you love. Yeah. And so that was a huge catalyst into comedy for me is that sure. I was like, yeah, that's, that's what it is. It doesn't matter if you make money. It doesn't matter what happens. Yeah. That's a very nice kind of succinct, simple outlook that can, that can guide you in many directions. You know, if you're following like the thing you're passionate and you love. And I feel like the key, the, almost the bigger ingredient is with people you love. It's the community yeah. you surround yourself. It's the, it's the, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of it all, you're going to think more on the memories of who you hung out with. Yeah. And it also makes, I feel like when you do this type of stuff, you, you, you learn to embrace failure and in comedy, especially you almost learn to love and appreciate failure. And a lot of the times failure is where you find the coolest stuff. So failure is this huge part of your life, but I feel like one of the, traps is to believe that you have to put that into your model of success meaning that if you don't become rich or you don't become famous or you don't get this show that you fail whereas if you set it up because you have to be failing all the time it helps to have a model of success that doesn't rely on if you succeed or fail if you do what you love around people you love you are succeeding you don't mm. need other people's permission to succeed you don't need anything you're already doing it right I had a good failure at our first character night. That was a good failure for me that right when I went out there, I discovered, I was like, oh, they don't like this. I've tried this, <laughs> this bit before and they liked it before, but this group was immediately shocked and like, what the hell is this? They did not like it. <laughs> that was a failure. <laughs> yeah. I always love those kind of moments when you're like, come out, especially a solo sketch and you're like, here we go. And you just get that wave of like, okay. Cause my brain instantly just goes, it's five minutes. Yeah. You'll survive. Just just say what you know you're going to say. Maybe we'll get some chuckles. Maybe not. <laughs> but hey, it's a story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I knew, too, that I was like, because they were I knew that I was like, this sketch gets more messed up the further into it it goes. Yeah. So I was like, if you guys don't like this, you are going to hate when I show you my bare ass right after talking about pedophilia or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, buckle up. It doesn't get tamer. You know, yeah. if you know anything, if anyone sitting there knows anything about sketch, it's going to build <laughs> yeah. to a place you don't want to go. So that's just that's just how it is. It almost um, makes it more fun because you're like, yeah. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I can't apologize in the moment, but afterwards <laughs> yeah. I will. I promise. I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a kind person. I see your faces. <laughs>
Do you have moments uh, in your life where you feel you've quote unquote made it or hit personal milestones? I feel like because I'm such an outsider to the industry and I didn't like I don't know a lot of stuff for me. I feel like that all the time. Like I remember taking basic at Groundlings and my teacher was Mary Shear, hmm. who was in Mad TV and who I, I've got like all the seasons of Mad TV on DVD. And I love watching Mary Shear. And I was just like, this is Mary Shear. And, you know, she's giving me notes on I felt like I was famous just by being around somebody who I respected. Mm-hmm. And so those moments of feeling like I made it when I'm alongside people that I respect, that happens all the time. It's the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like you have a lot of uh, just kind of still, you know, the joy and admiration for the journey and the meeting of people. And it's good. Cause it's not like so easy to try to either actually be, or to seem jaded, like, Oh, it's not a big deal, but it's like, at the end of the day, like, there's a reason we're pursuing it. This reason you're doing it is because it's like, it's fun. It makes you giddy. Like, you're like, this is cool. Like, it's a cool yeah. thing. How do you feel about the idea of becoming rich and famous? Like, where does your head go when you, when you, if you think about those concepts? I take it. I don't pursue it. And I think that, like, growing up in punk, uh, it definitely made it so that I opposed it in a lot of ways. Like, mm-hmm. And even though I'm not in that anymore, my mind is still there, which is that like, if you want to be liked, your poser is kind of like what a lot of punk mentality is built around. It's that it's antagonistic and it's like, uh, it's anti-establishment. So the idea of me being like a part, uh, like accepted and embraced by the establishment, obviously I want that. I think that anybody who's like, uh, I don't want money is like, well, yeah. But in terms of like being known by people or that ever had been a desire, no, I would accept it. But I think that the it, punk in me, I'm like, I don't know if I can turn that voice off. I wish I could. Yeah, I, I have a very opposite approach. I definitely don't have any punk in me. I'm just like, yeah, all right. People are liking this. This is great. It, I don't know. It's probably like a safety mechanism too. Is that like w- when you're a punk and you're like, oh, if I set it up so that people don't like me, then I can't be disappointed. Like that's why punks are always losers is because you're creating a world where people don't have to like you. Yeah, it's, it's a little <laughs> bit like uh, I've already rejected you, so you can't reject me. Exactly. Like, like I've like, oh, oh, you don't want to date me? In my head, I've already dumped you. yeah do you think maybe that is because i say it all the time that i'm like yeah i don't want to be rich or famous but maybe all of us who are saying that because it's all of us and it's usually the ones of us who have not made it (laughs) we're really like i don't want it at all do you think that we all want it like deep down do you think that we actually do i i think i think there's a small group that actually don't that genuinely come by it and and don't i think the ones that really like vocalize and seem almost aggro or intense about how much they don't want it i go i think you do i think yeah i would i would give it it feels like an 85 percent probably actually do want it i mean if i ever got it if i ever did get rich or famous the main reason why i would want that is just so that i could pull with diane keaton it's my dream in life to be able to buy that home that i grew up in mm-hmm. and go live in the middle of nowhere and not have to be around people and stuff so right. if i ever got fame i would immediately find a way to not have to do it you'd escape you'd escape pretty quickly something i heard this one time and it made me be like oh fame might actually because i I, 
I don't ever, when I think about like comedy or making it and stuff, it means getting to do cool projects more than it. I, I think about like, oh, people will know me. But I was watching uh, David Letterman's show. I forget what, what's uh, his new one. Uh, my and next guest, I think. My, or... Yeah, my next guest. And he was saying in that, that, uh, that somebody asked him like, well, don't you, you're like the most famous person ever. Doesn't it bother you? And he was like, no, it feels like a small town everywhere I go. Everybody just knows who I am. It's wonderful. And I was like, what a humble, cool way to look at it. That makes fame not sound so bad. Yeah. I've been asking people this question. So Andres, uh, Andres, 10 years from now comes back to today. What do you, what advice do you think future uh, Andres has for you? Probably to calm down, to do amounts that I can actually enjoy what I'm doing rather than experiencing the anxiety of the next thing during what I'm doing. Mm. I feel like that's one of the things that we convince ourselves of is that like the grind mentality and really what that means is that it's like you're never doing enough. You're never doing enough. And so at least for me, I'm like, there are days when I'm like, okay, like just yesterday I had to cancel so, uh, uh, something and I, I felt horrible. I'm like, I'm letting these people down and it's cause I double booked. And then it makes me feel like kind of crappy about it. And I feel like that's like for a lot of people, you're just overloading yourself so that you don't get to enjoy the things that you dreamt about doing, like performing at UCB. I remember listening in the van while we were touring, just listening to these shows where they'd be like people from UCB and just being like one day, I'm just going to go watch a show there. That's a dream of mine to go watch a show mm -hmm. in Los Angeles, in this big city. I'm going to go see UCB. And so the fact that like I get to perform there, I don't enjoy it as much having that grind mentality. Right. It's 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 basically being present and, and yeah. really accepting like, hey, this is what I'm doing right now. Because it can get tough when you're like, great, I got this. Oh, don't forget tomorrow. I need to do that. And then in a week, yeah. I got to make sure I have this ready. Like we can, you can really, uh, also the era, the business we're in really applauds and appreciates the irons in the fire. Like you got to have a bunch of things going at once, which I do as well. And everyone does. And I think it is important, but not, you don't want to do it to the detriment of actually enjoying when you are doing it. Cause sometimes yeah. it can be like, I'm doing all these things. And you just look at it and go, did you actually stop and like appreciate and we're grateful and like what you're doing, right? To kind of circle back to your own definition of success of like loving what you're doing with the people you love. And if you're too focused on the next thing, you're, you're taking away from some of that joy. Yeah. And you're, you're taking away, from, in, in my opinion, you're taking away from your performance too, that like when my life is a hundred, like I'm in a, it's not always like this, but right now I'm in a hundred percent comedy mode where I'm like, when that's everything, I feel like creativity isn't a limited thing. I, I believe that it's as infinite as you want it to be. But if you're doing it a lot or you're doing it multiple times a day, sometimes when you get to the show at night, you don't have the physical energy that you would if you were doing like one, you, you know, if you had like a an audition next week that you could really dedicate yourself to and live in physically. Yeah. With this business, and there's so many moments of like what feels like high highs or low lows. Like, what do you do in those moments of lulls? I mean, I I have music, which I I definitely when I have less stuff going on, I definitely get into. I'm also such a like a, a work addict that I'll create stuff for myself that's not there. So like, 
like social media, for example, is something that I haven't posted on social media in, you know, a, a, mo a month because I've been busy. Mm. But I know that the moment I am no longer busy, I'll be like, oh, now I can make a parody song. So I'm going to spend, you know, two days writing and recording a parody song and then I'll try and make a video for it. Mm. Or like over the pandemic, I was like, OK, I'm going to write and shoot a video sketch once a week until the pandemic's over. And so it just created so uh, uh, it's creating work for myself because those low moments, I think that what I really do is just lay in bed and I don't want to do that. So I just force myself to create scenarios where I can't stop making art. I have to keep making art, even if it's just for myself. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a drive, there's a pull. And for you, when you're creating, at least in the terms of characters, how do you kind of develop or work through characters are you kind of like a internal like cut get an idea and work out or are you kind of external like oh you see some either objects or costume pieces and you go okay you can flush this character out or maybe neither of those versions i think i like doing it in different ways and i see what it does to a character when i do it so like uh recently i was like okay i know that i want to do a character that's interacting with the crowd and let's see what that would look like what and so i ended up coming up with like somebody wanted to wrestle and so it like made this like very like uh kind of grotesque character and i at the time i still had fake teeth so i pulled my teeth out of my face and i just looked like really nasty and stuff and so i knew like Oh, all of that is coming from the concept. But then other times I really love it where if I'll be joking around with a friend and I'll like randomly do a voice of like, oh, yeah, that person's always like, and then I'll discover just through the voice. Oh, I know how this person thinks now just by doing the voice alone. I get it. Uh, or like you said, costume thing. If I get uh, uh, my mom mails me wigs all the time because uh, <laughs> She'll find them at Goodwill. So I've got like so many Goodwill wigs. She'll make mill wigs. I'll put one on and then I'll be like, oh yeah, I know who this is. There we go. Got a character from there. Right. Yeah. My I feel like my body leads the way. And then I start to know how they think most often. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Cause before like, our, we met, I remember I saw you in a show. It could have been a character show or a showcase type show. And you came out, your first character, I still think about it, just killed me. It was so funny. It was this like, kind of like drug dealer who hangs out too much. It was just like, oh, like I forget what your first line was. It was just so perfect. Just coming in with a backpack and you had like the right kind of look and vocally was so good. I was like, this guy is it the nail on the head. Like, so I'm giving you your props on Thank on you. Something. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, that's so funny. Yeah, I think you have a very good sense of like a unique kind of physicality and voice but a grounded in a reality. Like they don't, I think someone else could take it and it could feel a little cartoonish or could feel like, uh, it's not tethered to the world, but I think you are able to take, uh, you know, people, maybe punks, maybe people on the outskirts or people you wouldn't see and kind of, you know, bring them into like a, Oh, but I do know that person. Like I know, like you have a very good, I would say like a truth kernel in all your characters of like, there's something that makes them human. And not just a person in a wig saying some goofy stuff, which can happen, as we both know. That's the worst feeling. <laughs> you know, when you're clinging to an idea of a character and you know what it is and you just can't figure out how to stand inside of it. So you're just like strangling this idea, trying to figure it out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's exhausting.
yeah in moments we have to just let it go and be like this is not a person yeah Mm -hmm. for old friends i feel like that maybe that's another one old friends is a huge well is Mm -hmm. like that drug dealer was like my best friend growing up and it's just fun to imagine these people who i'm not in contact with i'm like what if they were still the same and mm-hmm. then you're just playing essentially you're playing a child but in an adult's body and so it's like oh yeah like i know that guy but really like a lot of the times it's just that person was in my child at least for me that person was in my childhood right. but there's a strong chance they wouldn't still be that way right. hopefully <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean truthfully hopefully they're they're they've grown but yeah pulling i always feel like it don't make it harder if you, if there's someone you know who just has an interesting either mannerism or point of view or anything. It's like, that's can be enough. Like, just like weave that into a character instead of being like, okay, I got to come up with someone. I find some people are just like, I got to come up with someone so original. So hasn't been done. It's like, kudos to you. But I'm just like, I need to just be like, okay, they, they kind of walk like that person. They sound like this person and they, their attitude is like that, but like, great. Just mold them together. Oh, so you can Frankenstein. Yeah. That's fun. Well, Andre, speaking of Frankensteins to a degree, now's the time when I bring out my monster of Raz Clifford, the roast comic. He comes out to knock the guest down a peg. He loves it. Here okay. <laughs> yep. Let's bring out Raz Clifford. Come on out, Raz. Oh, God. Okay, seriously, this is the guest, Daniel? Andres Parada? Okay, oh boy. Ooh, we have really fallen far in this podcast. Okay. <laughs> All right, Andres, I guess I'll start off. Look, Andres, what I like about your style of comedy is how vehemently you are about not making anyone laugh. <laughs> it is admirable. He, If you see him, he gets on stage and he'll do everything he can to make sure nobody is having a good time. It is remarkable. And for the listeners that you can't see him, let me paint a picture. Andres looks like if the main character from the film Powder got into improv comedy. <laughs> That's what we're working with right now. <laughs> Google Google the movie if you don't know, and then look up Andres, and you'll be like, that is perfection. <laughs> now, Andres, if, if there is a heaven uh, to steal from James Lipton, what do you hope God says, says to you when you arrive? Is this a real question or are you about to roast me? I, I'll answer it sincerely and then you do what you have to do. Okay, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for giving away the game. All right. When you made my people laugh, you made me laugh. Okay. Well, it was a roast. It was a trick question. You're going to hell. It's, <laughs> it's not happening. And just, you know, a word, of, a word of advice. I highly recommend you just grow a huge beard and just cosplay as Shel Silverstein. <laughs> and you just got some help from the giving raz <laughs> all right okay andres if you see me around just turn the other way i i don't want to talk to you i don't want to i was also from a very very small town it was a town of one because i have no equals so <laughs> all right bye bye raz gotcha. you, should have hit, you should have him host host the whole podcast yeah <laughs> mm. I don't know if a guest could handle it. Now, if you weren't acting and performing, what other uh, either area or occupation do you think you'd be pursuing? Well, before I dropped out of school, I briefly went for anthropology. 
Mm. And cultural anthropology. And I really liked that. Uh, I like the idea of writing, but maybe like writing from exploring reality more than like, you know, not poetic in any way that I feel like film can be poetic, even documentary can be poetic. And so, and ethnography can also is obviously also poetic, but for me, it just feels like it feels more clinical. Mm. Mm-hmm. And there was something that I really liked about that, that was exploring reality or exploring culture in a way that it, like that is infinite and and based so much on perception, but you present it as though it's reality in your writing. There was something that I really loved about that when I, when I was doing that. So maybe that. Oh, nice. Yeah. And still, you know, probably helps pull in from your actual performing comedy, your interest in in people and cultures and what makes them kind of tick in our shared stories language and history is you know an undercurrent of character development and comedy totally all right now if you have been and forgive me if you have but inevitably when you're a guest on a late night show what's a story you would love to tell (laughs) not this is the this is the first one that popped in my head so i'll do that one even though it was made me laugh because I was like, no, you would never tell that on a t- late night talk show. <laughs> but when we were driving, my mom would, uh, would drive, a, we'd go to the city and the city was kind of far. Am I supposed to tell it right now? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Uh, we were supposed to go to the city, uh, because that's where the grocery store was and stuff. And me and my brothers, uh, I was really sick and me and my brothers were in the van and my mom had this problem where we'd drive all the way to the city to go to the grocery store. We'd arrive there and me and none of my brothers would have shoes on. And so she would be like, God damn it. I can't bring you into the store now because none of you have shoes on. So stay in the van and I'll go. And I was very sick at the time. So she's like, I'm going to go get the medicine. That's why we were driving to the grocery store. She's like, I'll go get the medicine. I'll be right back. Uh, I trust her. She's a good mom. (laughs) Uh, I'm just pointing that out. Like she left us in the van, but we were all there together. It was a full van. It was Walmart. Nothing bad happens at Walmart. And so. Uh, I start panicking because I'm sick and I'm like, guys, unlock the doors, unlock the doors. And they're like, the doors are unlocked. They're like, just open the, go like that and open it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And I start having diarrhea and I start ruining my sweatpants and the tensing of that makes me vomit. So I start puking all over the dashboard. And my brothers are just like, what are you doing? Stop, stop, stop. Just open the door, just open the door. And it's too late. And so then, you know, 10 minutes later, my mom opens the door to the van and she's just like, what happened in here? Because it's just diarrhea and, and puke all over the inside of the van. And so then my mom is like, why didn't you just open the door? So she takes off my clothes and she uses my clothes to clean up me and the inside of my van, inside of the van. And she throws it all into the trash can at the Walmart outside there. And then we get out of there quick, but to get back home, we have to pass through a bunch of border patrol checkpoints. Cause there's, they're all over there and I'm a little naked boy. And my mom is like, Oh, you, that's not going to look good. If there's a little naked boy in the, in the van. So she has me hiding under the seats. <laughs> so I'm naked and sick underneath the seat of the van. Just like, <laughs> just crying to myself. But looking back, I'm like, mom, the only thing worse than seeing a 
naked sick kid is seeing a naked sick kid crying underneath the seat of the van. That's so much worse. If you're afraid of getting like having them see it, that's way worse. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Well, I need a, I need a few more details. So, in how many siblings are there? What's the birth order and what's the ages? What we're dealing with? How old are we in this? At this time, I was probably seven. I would guess. And I have another brother who's was 10 and then another brother who was uh, like six. Okay. So you're right in the middle. Uh, yeah. And then uh, I got two more siblings, but they're like 10 years younger. So they weren't uh, here. Gotcha. They don't even get to experience this. They don't exist in this. Oh my God. I love. Yeah. Just the like utter chaos in your child brain of like, Oh no. Like also the fact I love that. Like you just left all left the house, hopped in the van without shoes. Like, just what a what a hilarious thing. I guess in a weird way, maybe better than you having that horrible accident in the middle of the Walmart. I don't know. It's it's, it's, yeah. it's tough to say what would be more traumatic. <laughs> but also, I'm just like, you're filling your sweatpants. And I think like anyone who has like a diary in their pants story, the next thing is they're thankful to have shoes to be able to like stop it. But you didn't even have that. <laughs> like a tucking their stories were like i was so grateful that i had there are, there are like, some people who just like to tuck it into their shoes so it, it keeps it it keeps it at bay <laughs> yeah you didn't hop out also i'm a little surprised that the thought wasn't fuck stay here and your mom just went back to walmart to buy you some clothes or at least some sweatpants i don't understand that either i think this was not I imagine she because she could have bought us shoes in there, too. But this was the point in my parents' life where they were scraping by. Right. So there's a good chance that she was just like, I'm not going to buy this kid clothes because he's just going to fill him with diarrhea and vomit in five minutes anyway. That's his thing. That's his whole, <laughs> that's his whole thing. Sometimes um, she she when we would she would buy I remember her buying us shoes one time and she did buy me uh, girls shoes because she would buy she buy us the cheapest shoes. And I remember her buying me girls shoes. And I think in her mind, she was like, this will teach that boy. But me, I'm like, you just unlocked something. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's see. Let's see what character this creates. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my gosh. That's uh, that's so funny. What a what a what a traumatic. But like as a kid, when that happens to you, you don't have any sense of like this is going to be a ridiculous, hilarious story. Like, no. it's so amazing how those moments you're like, this is the worst thing ever. And then you're so grateful that it happened. Like, you have something like that. Like, all right, this is you, you think you have the throw up diarrhea story. I got I got one. We had to go oh, through yeah. patrol. <laughs> well, also, though, I don't know if I can tell this on a talk show, so I'll right. use it here. I got to think about this more. <laughs> right. This is this is the safe haven for this is talk show light. This is test. This. I te you test it out here. And the next stop is, you know, Conan. Exactly. Exactly. Well, seriously, thanks for hopping on and chatting with me. Is there anything you got going on coming down the pipeline for the listeners the next few months to keep their eyes peeled for? Well, you know, me and you got those shows at UCB. Right. On third Tuesdays. Mm -hmm. uh, third UCB, where we, we're doing characters. Yeah. Uh, and then fourth Wednesdays is Mod Night at UCB. And that's when my team is train wreck. Fantastic. Yeah. Check out Andres at UCB LA. See this guy come up with some hilarious characters and make you laugh.
But thanks again, listeners, for listening. I'm your host, Daniel Acker, and this has been Almost Almost Famous. Thank you.